you're listening to the Tech Talk Show. Hi there, my name is Sue Nelson and for the next hour we're going to be talking about all things tech and today I'm joined by Russ Shaw. Hi Russ. Hi Sue, nice to see you. It's nice to see you too and uh, Russ is the founder of Global Tech Advocates. I got it right. <laughs> I got it right. Yes. I always say Tech <laughs> Global Advocates by mistake. I got it right this week. I'm so, so pleased. Um, and we're also joined by Thomas Gear of the Reality Centre. And you two know each other, don't you, Russ? We do, because Thomas also leads the Tech London Advocates ARVR group. So we interface a lot. So we got, we've got you here to be the, our ARVR expert. Although, can I just check, Thomas, people don't do that anymore. It's just mixed reality, isn't it? Yeah, or XR. Even more complicated. What is just XR? to make things really simple, it's the extended realities. It's just to uh, really summarize everything into an X, you know, just so everyone is clear about it. So, so is AR and VR old-fashioned language um, vocabulary that we shouldn't be using anymore? No, I think it, it still applies, but, uh, you know, XR is just um, a summary. It's the overarching yeah, way yeah, of describing Yeah, overarching. So is it going to be the TLA XR group now? I think we need to talk about it, yes. Okay, all right, 2018, a rebrand. <laughs> there you Here go. It That's it. There you go. Um, now, uh, uh, last week, uh, Russ and I were in Helsinki uh, in November. It would be, God, it was freezing, absolutely freezing. And I'm, I'm really sorry, Russ, uh, beautiful and lovely, though uh, Finnish people are. Why do people live there? It's, Why? It's, Why do they live there? It was there? a bit chilly and a bit snowy, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's the people, it's the dynamism that keeps them all... Uh, warm at night. It didn't yeah, keep me warm be. at night, I'm telling you now. <laughs> um, and I think the thing that came across to me is what a highly intelligent, you know, community of people. Um, and really, I don't know, just sort of the whole place is sort of clean in the widest sense, you know, clean thinking, clear thinking, um, incredibly polite, speak the most beautiful English, grammatically much better than mine, obviously. <laughs> um, and, and they're just a very talented uh, country, I think, is, is what I found. Yeah. I, I hadn't been before. Now, I've, I've been to Helsinki a few times, sadly, usually in the winter, so yeah. it's dark and, and cold and grey. But the people are amazing. And, and I think more broadly, you know, if you look across the Nordics and the Baltics, um, you find that, you know, even though, you know, it is a harsh climate, particularly in the winter, but the, the, the people, the talent, the ideas, the creativity, the innovation is is amazing. I mean, you know, and it's Helsinki is not that big of a city when you look at it. Um, I think it's about the same size as Sheffield. Yeah, could, and, and, and look what they've produced over the I think that's the, the whole country I think I'm talking about. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's a really small uh, number of people. It is. Um, but, but the most incredible thing's coming out of there. Well, it is. And it's also fascinating for me to see how, you know, we all are very familiar with Nokia. Um, and obviously Nokia is, is a much smaller company today than it was 10, 15, 20 years ago. But what they've done is they've taken a lot of that talent and redirected it into this thriving ecosystem mm -hmm. of uh, tech startups and tech scale-ups. And, you know, the event was built around, the Tech Nordic Advocates event was an event pre-Slush. And Slush is now this really big global tech event that they have created over the past few years. And it's incredibly exciting to see what a small country with you know, well-informed, dynamic leadership can do. And we experienced that 
firsthand? Yeah, so we went there and it was uh, the, the Tech Nordic Advocates. Um, and that is, just remind me, so that's Sweden, Finland, Denmark. I think it was... Norway. Norway, Iceland as well. Yes. And, and then we've got the Baltics. Yes, which, which are... Is, Mm, mm, come on, Sue, you can do it. Uh, Latvia. Yes. Uh, no, I've got, no, that's it. That's Latvia, it. Lithuania and Estonia. Right. So it's all of that. Um, and it's a huge coastline, isn't it? Because it's, it's all surrounded by the sea. Massive. Um, and cold, as, as, as we said. But, but we went there because the, they are really keen, both in the Nordics and the Baltics, to be a tech hub. And they're really serious about it. They are. And, and Jeanette Carlson, who leads Tech Nordic Advocates, which is, is part of Global Tech Advocates, um, has done an absolutely amazing job. She, you know, she launched this group two years ago, and she has really worked very hard to look across the Nordics and say, okay, this is not just a Danish issue or a Finnish issue or an Estonian issue. This is a Nordic issue. And if we can really find some common ground across these countries, each in itself is fairly small. But if we can combine agendas, it can really be a very important and influential Nordic and regional powerhouse on the global scale. And, you know, you just have to look at, you know, Skype and Spotify. I mentioned Nokia. Um, you know, I used to go to Tallinn when I used to work for Skype, and the, the universities there produce great graduates. Um, I was just exchanging messages with, with Jeanette today, and she, she spent a lot of time with a lot of the Latvian leaders at Slush, and she said they are so fired up about what's going on, so we're going to bring a bunch of them over to London Tech Week. Um, this is a region to watch, and when you, you know, we talk about London in the UK, we talk about Silicon Valley, we talk about China and the Pearl River Delta. You know, you have to look at the Nordics and say, this is a really important part of the world that we have to pay attention to. And to your point, it's very accessible. The the innovation is there. It should be on everybody's agenda. The problem is, though, that, that you know, I flew from London to Helsinki and it took two and a half hours, mm -hmm. which is roughly the same time as it takes to Glasgow or Edinburgh. Um, and therefore, the, the, the problem with that is a lot of you know, Baltic, uh, Nordic people are coming to London because they find it exciting. And, and what they really need to do is, is, in a way, yeah, do that, but go back home. But, but you know, really make your countries the centre of it rather than thinking that coming to London is is, is the be-all and end-all because, because their attitude is different and I think their way of thinking is different and they've got so much to offer. They it, do. And I think, I think the governments there realise that and are also being very supportive in terms of how do they get behind these businesses, this industry. We talked, one of the topics that came up was Estonia has launched something called e-residency. So you can be here, especially as we leave the, the European Union and still be a resident of Estonia through their e-residency program. Um, That's pretty smart. It's very smart. Yeah. Um, you know, I often joke that London is the capital of Scandinavia. The number of Swedes, Danes, Finns, Norwegians that I meet here is, is, is quite phenomenal. But part of that is driven by scaling. And I think, you know, each individual country on their own, and I sit on the board of a Danish fintech business, and it's a great business and it's building great products. But the challenge that it faces is as it needs to raise more money to invest, 
the pockets are not necessarily as deep as they, they could be, although that is changing. So they then look more globally. They'll come to London, they'll go to Silicon Valley, they'll go somewhere else to get that level of funding. Um, and that and London is close for them. And, you know, English language, they all speak, as you experience, perfect English. Yeah. So this is a natural stepping stone as they look at the global landscape. But I think if they can do a pan regional effort, um, they might gonna, not have to do that as that's much. That's going to give them a bit more body and a bit it more is. critical mass. It is. Are you saying then that, that it is actually... Uh, access to investment that, that that's making people come over to London and to other places rather than than seek scale up inside the Baltics and Nordics. I think that is a factor. I mean, um, I'm generalising. No, I know. I think you know, like any any tech ecosystem, it's it's money, it's people, it's ideas. I think the the Nordics have demonstrated that they have brilliant ideas. Um, from the companies that they've to built. To be fair, small. though, it's dark a lot of the time. There's not actually much else to do, is there? <laughs> well, they do <laughs> spend a lot of time amazing. on the internet, so they are very, I mean, I don't know if you really, everywhere you go in Scandinavia, you get great connectivity. Mm. Um, they do spend a lot of time on the internet because that is also another way for them to reach uh, out globally. So that's part of it. There is the money side of it where I think the pockets of funding are getting better and people around the world are looking at Scandinavia and the Baltics and saying we should be spending more money there, especially as they see the success stories. And talent, they have great talent there, but Definitely. there's still, you know, they, you know, Sweden is a country of 8 million, Denmark is a country of 5 million, you know, the United Kingdom is 65 million. So the numbers are good and there's solid talent there, but is are the pockets deep enough is is probably one of the questions as they look to grow into much bigger, larger businesses. So being connected into other parts of the world is really important. Mm. And, and I've worked a little bit in uh, Denmark a while, quite a while ago. And, and what, I, what I found, and, and this is the same with, I think, Iceland and others, is they, they do actually think slightly differently. They're, mm -hmm. they're, 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 you know, they're, they're slightly off the wall, mm -hmm. you know, in a really good way. And, yeah. and, and and not just lateral thinking. And that's why I think they could genuinely be a hotbed of real innovation that wouldn't be an obvious innovation, say, in the UK. And again, I'm massively generalising, but I do think they're incredibly inventive. They are. And they have to think like that because, again... Because it's cold. <laughs> because joking, it's cold and it's dark and the no, weather's not great. No, but, it's... But I think that they do have this broader outlook. And maybe it comes back to their education system. I know Finland is ranked as one of the best educational systems in the world. Um, if you look at the UK, uh, the UK, three universities in the UK have imported a team entrepreneurship course from Team Academy in Finland. They're rethinking the whole education model there and exporting things like that. So that program has come to the UK, it's come to, France, uh, to Spain, to Germany, to Hungary, and it takes the whole education model and flips it around. My, how do I know this? My youngest son, is at UE Bristol, where they um, they have this course, and it's all driven from mm. Helsinki. And Thomas, you were saying to me earlier that, that uh, they're, they're driving forward on AR and VR quite a bit over there. You, you quite respect some of the developments over there, don't you? Yeah, it's actually uh, one of the centres in Europe. It's, uh, it's pretty amazing. They have the Nordic VR startup, and uh, they have the only uh, real acceleration you know, space that is ba uh, backed by Gumi, which are, it's one of the biggest uh, games conglomerate in the world that is Japanese. So the Japanese have invested over there heavily. And um, they also, if at Slush, that we just mentioned Slush, there's a very big VR presence uh, this year. 
you know, lots of exhibitors, lots of talks. And the head as well of one of the main VR company, HTC Vive, uh, the head of content is actually Swedish. And, um, and he's, he's actually dr uh, driving a lot of initiatives, you know, for diversity, you know, through VR and, uh, and, and in, in innovation at the moment. So uh, there's a lot going on over there. A lot of studios as well, uh, thinking differently. They are the VR unicorns. It's one of the studio and they, they're doing amazing things. So it's uh, mm -hmm. really interesting. Yeah. And, and, and was there any sort of sense of, of, okay, so we're in this region, you know, we're, we're over here uh, and then we've got Russia here and then mm -hmm. we've got Europe there. Is there any sense that they, they feel that Russia might be a threat in any way or, or, or not connected to what they're doing or that Europe's separate because of Brexit? You know, how do they see themselves in context uh, against the countries that they butt up against, so to speak? I, I, or did that I, not come across it at didn't, all? It didn't really come across at all. Mm. I, I don't think Russia really came up very much at all, other than to say and acknowledge that there is good startup talent in Russia, particularly places, you know, Moscow and St. Petersburg and, and being where we were, we were very close to St. Petersburg. But obviously it's a very different ecosystem in Russia than it is in the Nordics. Um, I think they look at the rest of, the, of Europe as, as clearly an opportunity, especially those countries that um, are in the EU and in the Eurozone is, is a good opportunity for them. You know, we have the digital single market legislation that's working its way through Brussels. It will benefit many of these countries. But again, I think they, 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 they try and figure out what are the dynamics so that they can look more broadly. We talked a lot about Silicon Valley. We did talk a lot about the UK. We touched on China and, and India, and we even talked about Africa. So I think we actually looked beyond the immediate region and looked more globally, which is testament to how they think about the world. I am picking up quite a lot of people talking about Silicon Valley, though, as if it's past its heyday. Are you, are you getting that? No, I don't, I don't think it's past its heyday. I just think it's at a completely different level. And I think... The challenges that I see are with Silicon Valley are, it's, is it's often too inwardly focused. And because there is so much talent, there's so many great startups and scale-ups there, and they probably do, do drink their own Kool-Aid a bit too much. But they are, I'm starting to see more and more people from Silicon Valley look particularly at Europe. Um, many of them 10, 15, 20 years ago went heavily into India, went heavily into China, and they're still there. Um, but I think they probably learned that doing business there is, is trickier than you would have originally have thought, but some of them have been successful. I think with the, the number of tech unicorns emerging, not just in the UK, but across Europe, there is much more interest in Europe now. And I think events like Slush um, put Europe more on the map. You know, the change in government in France at the moment with President Macron. Um, I met with uh, a number of leaders who came over from Paris last week wanting to set up tech Paris advocates and how do they better connect Paris to London. So we talked about creating a tech there's hub. quite a number of prisons in London, actually. There certainly are. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at one as we speak. Exactly. Um, but, but there's that opportunity there. You know, uh, the Atomico, literally um, two days after we left Helsinki, came out with their state of European tech report. And it was very positive in many degrees, except for diversity. We need to come back to that at some point. Um, but you know, even cities like Madrid, I was really surprised at how strongly Madrid ranked in terms of the level of startups being created, the amount of investment 
going behind these businesses. So you look at Madrid, you look at Paris, of course, Berlin, you look at these tech hubs across Scandinavia, look at Eastern Europe, um, you know. So, so do you think then Brexit's a load of old rubbish? Because actually the politicians can faff about and do whatever they're doing and argue and whatever. Um, but actually the rest of us have to get on with business because otherwise we're going to die. And therefore there is a movement of people just getting on with it, no matter what's happening around because... Well, we have to. We can't sit around waiting for two years, uh, you know, and therefore um, things are just moving afoot anyway, despite whatever's going to happen I with think, politicians. I think there is a, 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 a large degree of that underway at the moment. However, I would just caution and say there are things from a policy perspective mm. that we still have to get right. You know, we heard the immigration minister at our Tech World Tour event a few weeks ago say there will be no cliff edge on immigration that's a good thing because we still need to have access to talent and we need robust immigration policy. We still need to address certain aspects of what it means to connect with the rest of the EU and what it means to stay on our own. I mean, one of the things that's probably one of the biggest challenges is the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland. Mm. That will have it's an impact up. on all of us that's been interesting, in yeah. terms of how we manage our borders going forward. Um, you know, Ireland, Dublin has a vibrant tech hub. We have tech Belfast advocates. You know, Belfast is becoming very important in terms of tech. So we can't just give a pass to the government. You know, I know that's all that they seem to be focused on at the moment. That's a good thing because this disentanglement is complex and we have to get it right so that the day after when we wake up and we're no longer in the EU, as much as it can possibly be business as usual, that's what we have to push hard for. And if there's a longer transition deal for us to eventually step out, I think that's a good thing so that we can continue to stand on our own two feet as an independent country. I do hope we still have some type of trade agreement and not just be solely within the WTO, the World Trade Organization, but to be in some type of trade agreement with sure the EU. I'm sure there will be. I hope so. Yeah. And think about everything we've been talking about with mm. the Nordics and the Baltics. I want to make sure that it's still easy for us to connect to each other, whether mm. it's people, investment, or businesses going from here to there or from there to here. Mm, totally agree with you there. Um, and just finally, before we, we move on to Thomas sort of wholesale, um, anything that you would recommend, you know, if you're from Nordics or Baltics and you're in the UK or vice versa, um, definitely connect to um, tech Nordic tech, tech Nordic advocates, wouldn't yes. you really? Because, because there's such a lot going on and people can direct you and, and, and guide you. That's right. So, you know, through our communities, you know, we interlink with each other. So I'm regularly promoting events that Jeanette is doing through Tech Nordic Advocates. She's done a couple of big smart city events, both here in London and in Copenhagen. Obviously, she ha has her Nordic events. And conversely, she actively promotes what's going on here in London and in the rest of GTA. She has fully embraced the Global Tech Advocates agenda. So we're always sharing about what's going on where, you know, whether it's Slush, whether it's London Tech Week or other events and, and come into the communities. That's how we can connect you and make you a part of what's going on here. It's open, it's free, it's easy and the people are wonderful. Just do it. Just, just do it. Just do it. Um, and, and that's uh, Tech Nordic Advocates. And to be honest, if you just Google that, you'll have no trouble yep, finding it. Exactly. OK, well, we're going to have a little break and we can come over to Thomas. See you in a minute. Hi, I'm at um, I'm day two on the Advanced Engineering Show, and I'm in um, in the middle of Birmingham, NEC, and I've come across this really nice gentleman called I think his name's Geraint Morgan, but nobody calls you that, do they? 
No, that's right. Most people call me Taff. So I'm just going to call you Taff because that'll be easier. Now, rather confusingly, you've got a badge where it says Open University, but we're actually in the we're in the European Space, whatever it's called. Uh, it's a technology transfer uh, booth. So um, I work at the Open University. My day job is building instruments to go into space. So I was part of the Rosetta mission and built or helped build the Ptolemy instrument, which was the first thing to analyse the chemical composition of the comet. There you go. And I know you've worked on Beagle. So tell me about your, your experiences with that, because obviously that sort of got lost in a way, didn't it? Uh, that's right, yeah. Although, of course, more recently we now know that it did actually land safely, and uh, it's just that one of the solar panels didn't deploy, and, of course, our radio was underneath that last solar panel. But I've worked for Colin Pillinger, oh, who's obviously no longer with us, sadly, uh, since 1993. In, I originally worked on greenhouse gases and looking at how technology used for space could be used to look at methane and the sources of methane. Uh, I then worked on Rosetta and, and then, as you say, Beagle 2 uh, for a number of years. And sadly, in 2003, Beagle 2 didn't send any signal back or didn't bark on Christmas Day, as we like to think. Um, and so since then, I've been working on looking at how we transfer the technology and the expertise, more importantly, the uh, the multidisciplinary expertise we have to build space instruments and how those people can be used to address challenges back here on Earth. But a lot of people criticise um, the sort of space exploration and all that as, you know, as rather sort of funding that could be better used for, let's say, the National Health or, or whatever. But actually the real point of it is trying to devise technologies which are going to be useful to human beings in the future or are going to help medicine or, or all sorts of other societal issues, aren't they? They're not just some ridiculous dream. They're, they're there for a reason. Absolutely. And we're all... The team that builds the instruments are all the scientists and engineers. We all pay tax. We all use Tesco's or Sainsbury's or whatever. You know, we all spend our money in the community. Uh, we certainly don't get paid anything like what footballers get paid. And in fact, the whole Beagle 2 mission is probably uh, was less than Gareth Bale went to um, Real Madrid for. So, yes, we develop technologies. In fact, one of the biggest technologies that most people aren't aware of is Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi was actually developed by Australian radio astronomers to help them look at the skies. This probably isn't a person in this room that hasn't got a mobile phone that's using Wi-Fi. We all stream stuff at home, we all have laptops, tablets. That was technology that was originally designed to look into space, but is now being used to uh, pretty much in every device that, that, that's around. Innovation and research. Now I know another project that you're working on is, is, is uh, Water on the Moon. Now, that, that, again, that might, might, might sound quite crazy, but in the future, water is going to be incredibly scarce and there's going to be, in my personal opinion, more strife, turmoil, wars and whatever over water than probably, you know, that, that we'll talk about other sorts of energy at the moment. Um, and therefore, finding alternative source of water is, is quite critical for the long-term future. So is, is that, you know, how are you working uh, trying to get water on the moon or find water on the moon? Okay, well... Um our interest is in looking at uh, whether or not the moon will have significant amounts of water in the poles because it's very, very cold. Some of the coldest places in our solar system are actually in the, in the poles of the, of the moon. So um, the water over time would migrate. Uh, so water could come in from uh, uh, solar wind interactions or other interactions and that water that would be generated would then move around the moon and eventually get stuck in the poles. Its applications are that uh, if you send something into space, for every kilogram of payload, you need something like 600 kilograms of rocket fuel. So uh, if we're ever going to have humans going out to places like the Mars or, or even in the moon, colonization, you know, uh, if you've seen the recent TV program with Brian Cox, the Open University BBC program, 21st Century Race for Space, then 
you know, there are huge plans out there for people to be going, living on the moon and actually living on Mars. Um, and as you say, uh, being able to take water is not going to be viable. And so what you have to do is use the in-situ resources. So it's called ISRU, uh, in-situ resource utilization. So if you take a rock sample, you heat it up, you can release the water. You can then use that water uh, as water. You can crack the water to form hydrogen, which is a fuel. You can crack it into oxygen, which you can breathe. Uh, the hydrogen and oxygen can then be used to rockets to go elsewhere. The gravitational well on the moon is much less than on the Earth, so you need a smaller rocket. Um, so in terms of the exploration beyond the Earth, uh, I know people like Bezos have ideas about moving all manufacturing to the moon. And that's Jeff Bezos of, uh, of Amazon. That's right. Yeah, he has. You know, his uh, his company Blue Origin. He wants basically to have everybody, um, well, keep the Earth as a uh, well, a human residence, a kind of somewhere you live, whereas somewhere you work is the moon, or somewhere you corporately do your business. Absolutely. Now, how 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 realistic that is is another thing. But uh, and and again, you know, SpaceX and Elon Musk. You know, he wants to be on the moon. He wants to be on Mars. In the next uh, well, well, next ten years or so. So, uh, so these new billionaires are really pushing the frontiers. You know, the technology that they're developing is incredible. Um, and I know you're working on, on on loads of other things as well, um, particularly in terms of health. And and this, um, in terms of cancer detection, um, is something that you're you're really interested in. Yeah, I just had a PhD student who's just completed actually last week. And uh, so for the last seven or eight years, we've been looking at uh, trying to mimic what dogs can do. So back in 2004. There was a study in uh, the BMJ where dogs were proven to be able to detect the profile of cancer just by sniffing above a urine sample. Uh, ironically, those dogs are actually in Milton Keynes, where we, we're based as well, and so we've had the same samples and worked with the same clinical partners. Uh, and we've been able to work with uh, computer specialists from Cranford University uh, to develop algorithms that let us measure the complicated profile of compounds that are present above a headspace of urine. And uh, so we can detect prostate cancer. We can detect the, the difference between prostate cancer and old man's prostate. So is that? So that is that. Is, how does that happen then? So, so a dog has the ability. I can understand to, to, to work that out. But how do you how do you read those signals? How do you, how do you then measure that? How, how does that work? Oh, we, well, we use the similar, Well, we we'll use commercial versions. Uh, so high end you know, kind of Rolls Royce systems. Uh, that we send to the comet. So it's using mass spectrometry, it's using gas chromatography to separate compounds. So we, we basically um, take a urine sample, we sniff the, or we trap the chemicals above the headspace. There's over a thousand compounds above that urine sample. So, so you're mimicking what a dog would do naturally. So what, you, what, so what you've done is you've tried to understand what a dog would do naturally and then you're trying to replicate that synthet synthetically. I wouldn't say completely replicate it, but, but effectively what we know is the dog is looking for a pattern. Um, what we also know is, is that from the statistics of the, uh, the algorithms that look at the data that we generate, so we generate high quality data, it's a bit like having a high definition TV picture, um, and then the, the, the computer software can take those images and the same way as astronomers use it to actually look for different stars or different comets or whatever else, or things happening in our solar system, um, these bioinformatics specialists can look at the, can have a program that is trained to learn what is a cancer sample and what is a non-cancer sample. So somehow, mathematically, it can use this really high definition information, oh, high definition and high, uh, high, high volume data information to actually work out what the slight differences are. And what we're finding is it's not the presence or absence of a single biomarker, which is what most people try and do, is try and find a biomarker. Uh, and then and then they find out 
quite often they find out actually it's a bit more complicated than that. And in fact, in this scenario, what we think is happening is, is that the cancer is resulting in um, metabolites being released into the uh, urine sample. The body is then using those metabolites. It's getting used up and it's getting modified by, by the presence or absence of the cancer. And that signal is coming through into these compounds, which we can then measure. So, so much more... Uh a much finer and, and subtler way of detecting as opposed to these biomarkers. Uh, yes, and, and, and the way we look at it is, is that ideally the next stage would be then to, to go in to zoom in on where we think the major changes are. Can we then identify the biomarkers and then build a simpler system? The other thing is, is that this is, a, this is a just one piece of the jigsaw. So, you know, when you go to see a surgeon or a clinician, a uh, consultant, They've already got information about your family history. Your, your kind of, are you from, are you, uh, uh, from the Caribbean? You know, the risk factors go up because more, more men from the Caribbean have prostate cancer. Um, you know, what's your family history? What's your genetics? What is your general health? So it's it's just another piece of information that they can use as part of that kind of bigger jigsaw puzzle. Um, but we are also doing some other stuff. So for instance, um, we're looking at uh, the bacteria that causes ulcers. Um, and that's effectively... But for you, that's um, stomach ulcers as opposed to mouth ulcers? Sorry, that's stomach ulcers, yeah. And stomach ulcers, um, we now know, is not caused by stress. It's caused by a bacteria. Um, again, an Australian guy uh, has been awarded the Nobel Prize for finding this out. Um, and we can develop a technology that we use... Well, based on what we use to look for life on Mars, we can now modify it to look for a signature... Um, if, so if we give a patient a tablet uh, that is isotopically labelled with carbon, so it's a stable isotope, so it's completely um, uh, non-safe, uh, non basically, sorry. Um, it's completely safe. And, um, but what will happen is, is that if you give someone a urea tablet, uh, the urea is only broken down by an enzyme that's present in the bacteria. So a normal individual who doesn't have the bacteria won't process the urea tablet. Um, those that have it will have a very small shift in the carbon isotope signature of the carbon dioxide in their breath. So we can build a cheap machine that can go out and be used in the field. So you can identify people who have got stomach ulcers in, es in essence, or, or, or oh, the, no, the, no, the, no. the symptoms of it? Uh, not so much the stomach ulcers, but they will have the stomach, uh, sorry, they will have the bacteria present. So, so, so you now know that if they've got that bacteria present, they're going to be really prone to it, is what you're saying? Yeah, the, the statistics are about 15% of those people that will have the, uh, the bacteria will go on to form, have stomach ulcers uh, and about 3% will go on to have stomach cancer. Now, the treatment for a bacteria is obviously quite simple. It's a week, week or two weeks worth of antibiotics and uh, an antacid uh, or protein, protein inhibitor. Proton inhibitor. Um, the treatment of an ulcer is obviously much greater. Uh, the treatment of cancer is, is obviously really, really expensive. So potentially in the developing world, the incidence rates or prevalence could be up to 80% of the population. So in a country like India, which has 1.3 billion people, there could be between 900,000 and, and a million, sorry, a billion people uh, could be infected. Staggering, isn't it? And, and, and actually, just by, by taking these sorts of technologies and really understanding how you might apply them to, to practical problems. So it, this could be stuff you're finding out in space, it could be stuff that you're doing in the laboratory and, and really thinking about those innovatively, um, you can apply them to stuff that's going to make a huge difference. I mean that is, would save a fortune, wouldn't it? Yeah, it does. And, and again, I think the, the thing about space is that you are very restricted. Like I said before, you have for every kilogram you send up, you need 600 kilograms of rocket fuel. 
So in the lab, my machines are the size of twice the size of a family oven at home. The thing we sent to the comet was a shoebox. So you, the, the, the thing that space people are good at is throwing away the bells and the whistles, taking the scientific problem and distilling it down into what are the questions you want to answer and only those questions that you want to answer. Really laser, laser homing in on, on, on what the issue is and then trying to find a, find a, you know, a solution. Exactly, and, then, and that then translates back to Earth because you then work with the end, you work with the, the end users who are the people who understand the problem, they define the problem, you check with them that you've understood the problem, and again, this is really important, is that uh, taxonomy and the words we use to describe different problems, because we all come from different cultures, engineers are different to scientists, and scientists are different to doctors. Vocabulary is different. Vocabulary is completely different. You know, I, I have a classic one of our sensitivity. To me, sensitivity means how little of something I can measure. To someone who's a doctor or clinical training, it's how many times the positive patient is correct. So I've had a very big project where we had, we had a deliverable, and we both understood it differently. So it's very important to have that time to be able to work with you. And not make assumptions. Don't make assumptions, exactly. And, 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 and that comes from both sides. So, um, you know, we've had projects where um, someone has we started off a feasibility study and then within a week of the feasibility study starting, the, one of the requirements has changed by an order, several orders of magnitude. And suddenly the technology that they've come to us for is no longer applicable. And so we've had to find a different solution. But that's the lesson I've learned is that you have to have that period of working together and understanding everything. Uh, and then hopefully you come up with an optimal solution. And that saves shed loads of time later on. And I think that's the same with any project really, is, is, is not just steaming off on it, but actually sitting down, really getting to understand it. You know, don't, be, don't fall in love with the solution, but really, really fall in love with the problem. Really, really understand the problem. And then the solution is going to be much more practical, much more, more likely to be successful. Absolutely. And of course, the business model has to work as well. And again, you know, quite often people will come to you with an idea and the business model actually doesn't work. And it's rubbish. Yeah. It's rubbish, yeah. And uh, or, or the solution that we can provide is not within the cost structure or the price structure or it's too complicated for the end user. So, so there, there's, you know, from my experience, and sorry, the other thing about the space is that when you build something to go into space, you need a very multidisciplinary team. So you, you have your engineers, you have your physicists, you have your chemists, microbiologists, geologists, whatever. So actually it means that uh, kind of uniquely within most universities, we have a very multidisciplinary team. So when a challenge comes up, we can look at it from 360 degrees, as you say, and, uh, and actually come up with the optimal solution. So um, I'm on the European Space uh, Agency stand here. Um, I've learned a huge amount about that. Uh, watch this space. Ha ha. Do you like that, Taffy? And, and, and Taffy Morgan, thank you so much. And you've got to keep the good work up and, and, and all your colleagues. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. So you're back with us at the uh, Tech Talk Show. I'm here with Russ Shaw of Global Tech Advocates and Thomas Gear from the Realities Centre. Thomas, what is the Reality Centre? So it's basically a um, community, first of all. It's a physical space that now has actually another one that just opened uh, a month and a half ago, which is focusing on augmented and virtual reality uh, in terms of putting uh, corporates and uh, startups together to innovate. So we do that through a lot of events, uh, such as hackathon conferences, but also uh, we're launching an accelerator program focusing on the technology itself. And uh, we're working with corporates on uh, workshops and courses so that they understand how they can make the most of the, uh, the technologies and how they can actually develop as well content. Mm. So augmented reality is the one where Pokemon 
go. I don't know how, yeah. how many, how many up uses that, I don't know. But, but basically that's, that's something where you've got reality and, and there's a sort of animated or something that, 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 that's superimposed on top of that. Virtual reality is where you completely immerse yourself. Yeah, that's it. And, and, and again, I'm making that probably more simplistic than it is. Now, mixed reality, which for me has definitely got to be the future, isn't it? Is where those those things that e- e- all of those things are being combined. Yeah, in a way, they are um, mixed reality is a bit um, a newer name of augmented reality, in the fact that uh, you're actually uh, putting a layer of the virtual on the real, and it's especially Microsoft that have been coining this term uh, in a very clever way, and um, and actually it makes sense because the content that is being produced uh, for people that are choosing the, the Microsoft platform can actually be put either on their mixed reality VR headset or their uh, mixed reality mixed reality headset, the HoloLens. So um, it can actually, you can choose to put it either way or share it between someone that is in VR, so completely immersed, or someone that is wearing, uh, which is at the moment a very, you know, uh, bulky, but all-in-one, uh, you know, uh, very, very futuristic HoloLens device. And uh, this is actually really interesting. So are Microsoft trying to uh, own the generic term? Is that what they're trying to do? So they're trying to own the term mixed reality. It seems that, yeah, the, the, it's, it's, a, it's a platform. We've and, got to find uh, another name quick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's why I was mentioning the XR as well. So I mean, lots of uh, businesses, you know, have been, you know, just renaming into uh, the XR fund or the XR, you know, association. And I mean, so for example... X reality. Yeah, X reality. So including all the acronyms, all in one, if you, if you want. And uh, that makes things a lot easier as well so that you don't have to enunciate one. But they are all actually very different. So uh, I think it's important to actually uh, specify what you are doing, you know, in, if you're developing content, for example. Mm. So, so you started off sort of as a 3D CAD technician. Is yeah. that right? I've got that in the old days. Where yeah, I, yeah, I remember a long time that. ago. Yeah. yeah, trying to like turn a chair, chair around on yeah, a computer yeah, yeah. screen. Well, that was, that was very advanced. Um, but if you think about it in those 20 years, what's happened is, is incredible. And, and most of that's really been down to, I would guess, um, download time. So we can now download so much more than, than we used to. So you have to wait. You have to wait 10 minutes before. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, and now we can yeah. literally do it in a split second. And that's what has enabled the, the developments in AR and VR, isn't it? It's, 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 it's the amount of data that can be processed is, is staggering in, a, in, a, in such a small amount of time. So yeah, it's data processing and it's, it's the smartphone, you know, uh, economies of scale mm. and miniaturization. So basically uh, having, you know, such normally expensive parts all together in, uh, in one headset, for example. So two smartphone screens, actually Oculus, which is, you know, one of the many innovator and, uh, and first comer on, for the, you know, really big commercial devices. This company that was created by, you know, one young kid that was just a smartphone, actually a repairman. And uh, he just actually just put together a lot of smartphone parts together, two smartphone screens, you know, a lot of different chipsets. And he created the first Oculus, uh, this company, you know, that was bought out for 1.8 billion uh, by Facebook. And um, I think it's really down to to those, you know, uh, parts from the smartphones that have made those VR headsets possible today because they've been around actually for 20 years, you know, in research centers. Some people have been, you know, developing for the defense industry, for example, training applications for over 20 years in the UK. And uh, for example, and um, 
and you know it's been going around but for the first time in the last three years it's coming mainstream and now that we just mentioned Microsoft they're going really um, at full power on full it pelt. Mm. yeah so it's actually um, the price point is going down it's more and more plug and play uh, so they're becoming really accessible and they're probably uh, going to come to the homes and the desks uh, you know, um, very easily in the next year, I think. I, so I can understand it from a corporate perspective where you're doing, you know, incredibly important training things yeah. where, where I can see that a headset's really important. But you're still not going to get me walking down the high street with one on because it just makes you look an idiot. They've got to do something yeah. about that because they've got to try and start to make it invisible or, or fashionable or something, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. I think VR, it's more... Um, um, you know, a static or a very specialized space where you would go to experience maybe using, you know, a, a very robotic, you know, a device and you're wearing a VR headset and you think you're flying through space. And then you might have it in, on your desk, you know, if you, you know, want to do um, maybe remote collaboration and meetings or at home to visualize, you know, to transport yourself to, I don't know, this beautiful, you know, uh, magical world that you always dreamed of. But otherwise, the ones in the street, really, it's the mixed reality device. It's those, you know, hopefully uh, glasses, which are even, you know, uh, lighter than yours <laughs> of the future. And uh, that's the big challenge, basically, at the moment, is to be able to actually produce those. There's a lot of challenges. Uh, personally, I think we are at least five to ten years away or even more to those, because obviously you have processing power, uh, you know, b battery, uh, so, so optics. So what, ha what happened to Google Glasses in, in, your, in your personal opinion? I think they're still in use. Uh, Just too, too soon? Yeah, a bit, a bit too soon Still for, made you look for, stupid. for a, a commercial uh, use. They are there and they're being used in, you know, warehousing, etc. But for everyone, um, yeah, that was too soon. The perception of the technology, the, the, all the, you know, the publicity around how invasive the camera, the phone camera could be and uh, all the ethical, you know, questions that was raising, uh, that was too soon. And the Snapchat, you know, recent, you know, uh, spectacles, Obviously, the, to gamify and have a, um, a product, you know, a brand and image that makes it more fun and funky. Obviously, that's kind of, you know, making it uh, much more easy to adopt. Because my vision of it is, um, you know, when I was a kid and people used to walk down the street and talk to themselves, you know, generally used to lock them up because there's something wrong with them. <clears throat> now everybody talks themselves down the street because they're actually speaking to somebody on the phone. So that, that's all become sort of acceptable, if you know what I mean. Yeah. If, you're, if you're wearing some sort of virtual reality set, I can just see people taking part in, yeah. I don't know, something that's going on, which physically changes what they're doing. I mean, you get locked up for that now, but in five years' time, I'm seeing that, that maybe people are walking down the street and that they're in a completely different, literally in a different world, <laughs> which is slightly scary. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think enough be... people bump into me looking yeah. at the phones that is at the moment. <laughs> That's true, I completely agree. I think the it's really the, the challenge and I think the, you know, the big tech brands uh, know about this is to make them as, as uh, fluid as possible, you know, as, uh, as seamless so that they, only, they also enable you to interact in a natural way with the real world. And they only, um, you know, bring you information when it's truly needed according to your uh, habits and personality. And, uh, you know, and they know that the first experience counts. So they're not going to release, you know, a, a device that is going to really spread too much information at you at all times. Waves of people dying yeah. on, and giving on you London points. streets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's just so this episode of uh, Black Mirror where, you know, everybody has points uh, looking, when you're looking at others. And, uh, you know, 
obviously if you have higher points you got you know uh, more chances to get uh, this no, job please. or this mortgage and uh it's just you know it's a hor- it's a horrible <laughs> vision but that's that's the question they are really you know uh, uh, discussing Ross, in this have episode. you got any thoughts on, on where the, this particular well, bit uh, of tech is going? I wanted to ask you, Thomas, um, because one of the things I've started to pick up recently is, you know, the, there's a lot of excitement around this space, but I think putting an investment hat on, you know, other than, say, the big tech giants, you know, the, we talked about Microsoft, we talked about Facebook and their acquisition, is there money to be made by companies, startups, scale-ups, breakthrough companies in the AR, VR space. And the reason why I ask that is one, I sense that to do this, whether it's the, 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 the glasses that you have to wear, the element of design that has to go into this, it feels like it's a very capital intensive industry. And, and therefore, you know, we need to bear that in mind. And then what are the use areas? Um, you know, we talk a lot about gaming and, and that whole area. And you've seen me with this stuff on getting mm-hmm. absorbed by a game and I'm not a big gamer. Yep. But then I also look at other sectors like health tech and healthcare that's looking at this space very closely. Where do you think the money's going to be made? Because if there will be good returns on this down the line, then this will be an important sector or it could be one of those sectors that maybe goes the way of Google Glasses, which is it's well ahead of its time and we won't see something for 10 years. Yes, yeah, so I think in um, VR, uh, if you look at VR, so the, the immersive experience in terms of the investments that have a really strong potential, it's all about training. And uh, you can see that already a lot of very big uh, corporates are actually investing heavily in using those for employee training. So Walmart, Sodexo, which is the biggest catering company in the world, and uh, DHL, and so on and so on. And um, it's true that from an investor perspective, you will think, you know, there are not enough, you know, active users. Uh, you know, all those, you know, metrics that you use, you know, to check, you know, the, uh, the due diligence and the, the, the analytics. Um, it's just not there. It's too nice. Training and remote collaboration, they're the two big ones. And uh, they're getting a lot of growth at the moment. Um, I mean, all the training, you know, companies that are seeking, you know, a post-seed a series A investment, they're getting it quite easily. And they are actually demonstrating strong, you know, uh, revenues already. And uh, it's just, uh, that's working. I think there are two really, um, you know, streams of investments here. You have the VR, which is mostly on people that are creating uh, content, um, you know, and the others that have created a platform that, to deliver those. So that, for example, you know, how to create your training application more easily using some specific machine learning and um, you've created some real IP there. Then the other one is mixed reality. And uh, mixed reality, though, those glasses that we were just uh, talking about, those wearables, they might become contact lenses in the future, who knows? There's such a big gap to where we need to be that there's a lot of potential in actually investing in, in, in innovation. When you compare uh, with the rest of Europe, with continental Europe, uh, 3D technology has been around you know, in Germany and France, for example, for a long time. They're very strong uh, in this. In the UK, um, you know, it, not so much, to, to be honest. There's a very strong potential here. And because those are using a lot of computer vision and machine learning, there is very strong AI uh, in the UK. A lot of it is going to fintech and, um, you know, and other applications. Not so much in uh, mixed reality uh, for the moment. 
But I think that for us, that's our point of view. We want to actually help to to activate this and uh, work with research centers, but also, you know, convince uh, talent. Ross, that it's, it's a good... It, it, it's very easy in the UK to go into fintech because it's such a big sector for the UK. So if there is an application, it seems like the default thing is, oh, yeah, we'll do it in fintech because it's a huge part of the British economy and we've yes. got loads of skills and advances in there. So what you're saying is it's getting skewed over to that area in the UK in particular. Well, I mean, and then coming back to games and gaming, you know, the UK is, if you look globally, is very strong in that space as well. So I think that's part of the reason why this will also be developed um, here. Um, you know, we mentioned healthcare and health tech. You know, we have the National Health Service. You know, so I think I think they're the largest digital employer in the country. So you know, the whole notion of how you bring AR, VR, XR into the healthcare space, I think the NHS will have a, a key role to play. And as they are allowed now to procure from smaller and medium-sized businesses. That is another way in which you can say this application with these types of health tech startups working with the NHS could be another way forward. So there's multiple pathways here, I think, because of the sectors that we're strong in, the creative industries, you know, look at the whole design aspect mm. of this. We're incredibly strong. So AR and VR is going to emerge in that area as well as these two places combine and collide. And that's you know, it gives me pause for exciting. optimism. Yeah, it is very exciting. So part of our effort now needs to be coming back to my question earlier, how do we make sure that investors are behind this? And it's encouraging to hear, Thomas, that, you know, when you talk about things like AR and VR for training, that if you're post Series A and you're in this space, getting the funding is not an issue. So that gives me optimism Great that this is yeah. really starting to gain some traction. And, and how is um, AI cutting across that? How is it adding to that? Because it's, it's got to be a key part of it. Yeah, what I are you seeing? For, for mixed reality or even just augmented reality, it's basically, uh, you know, those are just AI, you know, on wheels, basically. They're just, you know, it's you have the screen or the visualization and then you have the camera and all of this is driven by AI. You know, without without AI, there so wouldn't like be the any of those. It's the engine underneath it. It's the engine to to identify what an object is, where you are looking at. So it's actually making the the experience and the, the vision personal, and uh, and it's helping to optimize you know uh, all the experience. So it's actually uh, it's it's a key component, and that's the reason why uh, you know there's so much potential behind it, and every little you know innovation. Uh, from the the capture to the the, the compression to the visualization to uh, how the data is interpreted, there's there's so many layers involved. So there's a lot of uh, of potentials here uh, for innovation and IP. So it's very exciting. And what yeah. about retail? Because I always feel retail lags behind. Is that just me? It always feels like it lags behind a bit, you know, in terms of taking on technology. And and retail has got to embrace experiences if it's going to survive, uh, uh, really, because. If we don't, if we if we don't drive people out of their homes and away from sitting on a chair ordering stuff, then then we've we've got to make shopping an experience or going out and buying things an, an experience. Are you seeing any threads of hope really in terms of AR, VR, XR in, in retail? I've seen some interest, but uh, not so much yet. They're Doesn't still at the much, um, they're still at the IoT investment, stage. Yeah. I was involved in you know all the the beacons and those kind of things a few years ago. And there is the J Lab, you know, innovation in level thirty nine, and there's there is some interest, 
but it's it's a little bit uh, behind because I think they're more reactive in general or or they're just uh, realistic. They know that you know the end user, for example, a mixed reality device is not there yet, and uh, hopefully that they're, they're not looking at it a bit too late because there's a lot that can be done here. And uh, I mean, we we would like to be involved a lot more, you know, with uh, with the big retail giants in the UK. Well, what what could it do for them? You know, if they could make a massive leap of imagination, what what how could it transform? You know, the the, the retail experience. I mean, how could it transform the high street? I think is what I'm saying. Well, it's it's bringing the the high street uh, to a, a personal level that is never seen before. You're interacting with people. On a, on an intimate, you know, uh, but not natural intrusive. way, yeah. which is non-intrusive, and not without, you know, um, a, a physical device. So it's uh, and and you can do all of this as well uh, without any any hardware uh, on the on the end user. So you can have, you know, with the consent uh, or th- or through regulation, you can actually uh, just have, you know, smart devices all around the store, which will learn about people and. Um, and just provide them with, you know, the right information to lead them to what they're really looking for, and uh, and there's a lot that all of this is is almost, um, you know, a, vir- a virtual uh, circle of IoT uh, talking to mixed reality, uh, you know, with AI, and uh, and then what we call as well, just um, you know, all the data sets. They are all talking to each other. Uh, to enable this kind of master data, uh, which I mean, can transform. When you know, I hate retail. shopping, I'm, I'm just hate shopping. The, the thought of going into a store, queuing up in a yeah. very big long queue, and then paying in a really old-fashioned way. I mean, I just find it miles behind. I just find it's way mm. behind the As you've been, have you been speaking, I've been thinking about an example. So we have a, a, a great startup in East London called Metel. I don't know if you know Tom. Yeah, yeah, it's good. And if you look at what he's doing and doing very successfully, you can go online and you put your own dimensions in, your body weight, your body shape, whatever. And as you're shopping, you can see on the screen what you look like in that piece of clothing. And so I was thinking maybe a next step is how do you shop, you know, if it's clothes, and, you know, see what you look like, experience and feel. What are those running shoes feel like with my AR, VR <laughs> goggles, whatever. It, it can potentially take you out of your, you know, comfort zone and into an actual experience or as close to an actual experience as possible to help you with that process. It, it, Maybe it's around buying a car. And, and I think that's what I'm saying is, is that you, it'll only compete when you can't do that at home on your own. Mm. Uh, then people will get off their chairs ordering stuff and, and, and go into a retail experience because it's going to give them something extra. Yes. Well, I think that your more savvy retailers will, will say this could be a differentiator. The, mm. I mean, the flip side is it's expensive to, to get that investment in behind doing this. And retail is traditionally, high street retail is a low margin yeah. business. So finding that it's extra tough. money tough business, to yeah. do that, you know, you do have um, Marks and Spencers and John Lewis now setting up their incubators. River Island has a very good place now in Hoxton. So the high street retailers are investing in incubators and accelerators to better understand this. But I still think we're a long way mm. away. Well, we're just coming to the end of the program now. You're just you're you're just looking at the future, things that you'd be investing in if you had loads of money, Thomas, in the next five years that you'd. Put yeah. Your- Absolutely. What, what would you What would you go for? Well, what are you seeing? Yeah, for I mean, obviously, 
I'm all uh, in for mixed reality. That's an obvious <laughs> thing. But um, yeah, I think it's all about you know how you make the the best as well. I'm I'm looking into organic computing as well. How you can actually you know be beyond quantum. You know how you can actually learn from the natural you know world to actually improve you know uh, our digital you know uh, knowledge and um, and how you can optimize you know those actually computations. It's probably not in the next five years, but I think there's a lot that we can actually uh, un learn and, and research around that. Saw so a couple so, of amazing uh, companies now, uh, Tech Talk 22, actually, which yeah. you, can, you can see on techradar.com. We're solving some interesting uh, okay. things based around that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll have a look. Too, far too brainy for me. Well, <laughs> far you know. too brainy yeah. for me. Um, well, uh, Thomas Gear, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Thomas is CEO and co-founder of Reality Centre. And that's, uh, that's an amazing um, shared workspace, got loads of demo opportunities, training events, loads more than that, and trying to push the boundaries of uh, AR and VR. If you want to know about it, you need to go on to realitiescentre.com. So, Thomas, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. And as usual, uh, an absolute pleasure to be co-presenting with Rush Shaw Global Tech Advocates. Don't know where you're off to next. Uh, Globe trotting around the world. Uh, nowhere at the moment, and I'm really pleased about that. So yeah. Staying in <laughs> Have London. a nice Christmas and just chill. Exactly. Very good. And thank you very much for, for joining us, Russ. Pleasure. Um, you've been listening to the um, Tech Talk Show. And uh, we're syndicated across um, oh, hundreds of thousands of listeners we've got now. Um, and uh, if you want to recommend any future guests, someone you think is doing something groundbreaking in the tech sector, please get in touch um, via Twitter is the best way, at Tech Talk Show UK. And if you want to listen to any of our hundreds of podcasts, go to techtalkshow.co.uk. And I'm hoping in the future we're going to be on Tech London Advocates website soon as well, which would be Absolutely. great. Absolutely. And I hope you all have a good week. Bye-bye.